Well, hey, good morning. How are you guys doing? Take your Bibles. We are taking a break from 1 Corinthians, so if you already started turning there, you're going to have to slow down. We are going to be in 1 Samuel this morning. We are breaking from our study kind of chapter by chapter for, through 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 15. Please raise your hand if you don't have a Bible in front of you. If you need a Bible, get one. I'm not going to so much as preach this morning as I am going to just walk you through a text and pull a couple of points from the text. We are in 1 Samuel 15. That's about a quarter of the way into your Bible if you're searching for it. But our time this morning is going to be studying the topic of obedience. This is what we call an all-in Sunday. And about once a quarter this year, we've been breaking, talking about things that as a church we want to be all about. And we broke in November and we talked about we want to be all about uh, letting God be an authority in our lives, letting God's word stand as an authority. Today we're talking about obedience. And as you're turning there to get our minds going in that direction, um, Friday afternoon, I was at church. It was just a little bit after lunch. It was around 1230. And uh, Cal and uh, Phil were like, hey, we haven't had lunch yet. Do you guys want to go get something to eat? And uh, I was like, no, I really can't. I got to finish a message. Uh, one of my grandkids has a birthday party at three. I got to get out of here early. I better stay. And uh, they were like all pouty faced. So um, I decided that I would go against my better judgment. And we went to a restaurant in Spring Lake called Ted's. Because we'd heard, none of us had been there, we heard that they had really good burgers. So we got to the restaurant, we sat down, we looked at the menu, we weren't sure what to order. The waitress came, we're like, what would you recommend? And she's like, well, our best burger, if you ask me, is the peanut butter and jelly bacon cheddar burger. And like, who's going to turn that down, right? So, so we ordered that burger, and I would tell you that as we sat there and ate it, it was fantastic. Now, in defense of the waitress... I didn't explain that I was going to a birthday party later that afternoon at a place called, um, I just dropped the name, Planet Three. It's a bouncy place with trampolines. And I was going to be an observer, but all of my grandkids were there. And suddenly I found myself as a participant in the bouncy house. And well, the way, here's how I would describe it for you. I would say that the peanut butter and jelly bacon cheddar burger has become kind of an analogy in my life for disobedient choices. See, <laughs> they sound good in the moment. They might even be, you know, delicious in the moment, but in the ups and downs of life, you want to choose things that will um, stay with you, okay? So... You guys are following me, right? So, so here's what I would say. Seldom is obedience the most attractive choice on the menu. But, but God promises that when we choose to be obedient, well, that's going to bring with it some consequences, some unintended consequences, some real consequences. Same with disobedience. And this morning as we turn to 1 Samuel 15, we're going to be looking at this issue of choices and a choice that Saul made. And I would just say this, I've come up with 14 reasons why we should choose obedience. I have 25 minutes to give you 14 reasons. So you're going to write fast, I'm going to talk fast, you're going to listen fast, and we're going to pray that the word of the Lord uh, becomes very alive and real to us this morning. The big idea is this this morning. Both obedience and disobedience lead to unintended consequences. Both obedience and disobedience 
lead to unintended consequences. Let's start right in 1 Samuel. We'll pick it up in verse 1. It says this, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Now a couple things right from there, just a reminder. Uh, Samuel is one of the last judges. He is a prophet of the Lord. He is reminding Saul of how God has already used Samuel in his life. And Saul is a guy who was the first king of Israel. The people had cried out, we want a king like the other nations. And God had relented and said, if you want a king, we'll give you a king. And Saul was the people's choice. Saul was, it says, head and shoulders bigger than the other guys of Israel. He was strong. He was handsome. He was a hero. We don't know exactly what Saul looked like, but there's been some archaeology studies. And my wife pointed these out to me. Like, apparently he looks like this. I'm very similar to that. <laughs> apparently that's something like, I don't see Bradley Cooper, but apparently that's what he looked like. Um, I Pull that down. I don't want it to be a distraction for some while I try to teach God's word. But he was the it guy. Like he had it going. And it says in verse 2, this is Samuel, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Okay, just, just a question so far in the text. God is giving Samuel or Saul a command through Samuel. Question, is the command clear? Oh yeah, it seems pretty clear. Everything's got to die. Now, as I was listening to the God at work testimonies of obedience from Ian and Katie and from Andy and Molly, they were, ought I con should I continue to teach? Should I sell my business? These are things where we're seeking to know what the Lord would have us do. But that's not the case with Saul. It's crystal clear what God has asked him to do. There's no lack of understanding or wondering what God would have him do. It says this in verse 7, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and all the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So, so question, there's a command given by God, it's crystal clear. There was a response by Saul and the people. Here's the question, were they obedient? I wonder why. I wonder what reasons they could have given for not following the command of the Lord. Is it possible that they looked at the command as too harsh. And see, the problem wasn't clarity. Maybe in their minds, the problem was severity. And they were like, I, I, I just don't agree with what you're asking me to do. Could, could we just all acknowledge sometimes the Lord tells us things to do and we don't understand everything that he asks us to do? Maybe that was it. Maybe Saul was influenced by the people. It seems to indicate that as we move through the text, that he didn't want to disappoint his own countrymen. Maybe there were some insecurities in Saul where he listened to the people rather than led the people. 
Maybe they made just the judgment call, well, God wouldn't want us to not take the riches of the people. Maybe he must have meant just the worthless stuff gets devoted to destruction. But for whatever reason, they took a clear command of the Lord. They made a value judgment and they said, we're going to follow part of his command, but we're not going to complete all of his command. And listen, don't miss this, that, that choice to do part of what God has asked us to do, but not all of what God asks us to do. That is a choice of disobedience. It says in verse 10, in response to this, and the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Now, if you're keeping notes, I'm going to be working my way down the left-hand column under the word disobedience, but what we're talking about is the seven unintended consequences of disobedience. And when I say unattended, I mean the things that we don't want to think about while we're choosing to disobey the Lord. It says in verse 11, this is God speaking, it says, I regret that I have made King Saul, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Here's the first thing that we see. We forfeit God's favor. It goes on in verse 35, this comment by God that he regrets making Saul king bookends this entire passage. In verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king. Verse 35, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king. Now please understand, our God is never changing. He knows the beginning and the end of the story at any point in the story. And when it says that God regrets, it's not like, man, I wish I hadn't done that. That's not our God. But what it is doing is it is saying in the moment where Saul chooses to sin, an almighty God looks down with sorrow. Though he knew he was going to choose it, the reality is, I just hope you hear the heart of God in that. That there's sorrow when we choose to disobey. And the scary thing is, what's indicated is here is that Saul in disobedience, the first unintended consequence, he's losing the favor of the Lord. And, and I believe it starts there and I believe it ends there because it is the most important thing. You can have everything in this world, every possession, every pleasure, anything that you can possess. And if you lose the favor of the Lord, you have nothing. And you can lose everything in this world. You can lose your wealth. You can lose your health. You can have relational strife. But if you have the favor of the Lord, you have everything. And one of the things that we pray for our church, for the families in this church, for our lives, is that we would know and experience the favor of the Lord. Moses cries out in Exodus when God says, go to Canaan, go to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. He cries out, don't let me go one step away from your presence. I'd rather stay in the wilderness with you than go to a land flowing of milk and honey without you. Because Moses understood what we also desire is that we would experience and taste of the presence and the favor of the Lord. The first consequence of disobedience is we forfeit that favor. It says in verse 11, and Samuel was very angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he has set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. So here's the second thing, second unintended consequence of disobedience that impacts God's people. Think about this for a moment. Samuel is a man of the Lord, but because 
Saul has chosen to disobey. Now he is troubled. It says he's up all night. You've probably, maybe some of us have had nights like that. Have you ever not been able to sleep? Because you've got to deal with something the next morning that you don't want to deal with. And Saul's got this conversation coming with Saul that he'd rather not have because he's got to confront him on his sin. And he's tossing and turning. He's rolling all night. You had a night like that? And all of a sudden you look at your alarm and Samuel's there and it's 4 a.m. And he's like, I wonder if it's too early to text Saul. I wonder if it's, you know, too early because he's dreading this thing. So it's impacting the people of God. But that's the minor thing. I won't take the time right now, but I could take you to 1 Samuel 30. And in 1 Samuel 30, Saul's successor, his king, King David, will spend all of chapter 30 fighting this nation called the Amalekites. Because Saul didn't do what God commanded him to. And I can fast forward you 500 years further to the book of Esther. And in the book of Esther chapter 3, there's this guy by the name of Haman. And it says he is an Agagite. He is a descendant of the king of the Amalekites, Agag, who Saul chose to spare. And it says that this man Haman is bent on wiping out every Jew that resides in Persia. See, unintended consequences of our sin and disobedience that spill on to other people in our lives. Here's a third one, verse 13. It leads to duplicity. And Samuel came to Saul, so he finally finds him. And Saul says to Samuel, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Okay, question. Is that true? Okay, is Saul lying? I'm not sure. I'm not sure in the text if Saul is lying or if he's fooled himself. It's not clear in the text if he knows that he disobeyed or if he's convinced himself that he did obey when he hadn't. But either way, here's one thing we know for certain. His lips are moving. He is saying things that are very different than his actions would suggest. And when we find ourselves living in a way where we are saying we are one thing and we are doing something very, very different, that creates duplicity in our lives. And I'm telling you what, there is nothing that brings more stress, more fear, more anxiety than saying you are one thing when you are living a different way. Because you bear this weight, like, who's going to figure it out? How do I keep up the facade? What if my mask falls off? We see duplicity entering into Saul's life. It says in verse 14, now, in response to this, I performed the commandment of the Lord. I'm just going to warn you, Samuel gets a little snarky here, okay? Look what he says in verse 14. He says, and Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? In essence, Saul, quit telling you, quit telling me, you obeyed the commandment of the Lord because I'm having trouble hearing you over the farm animals. So immediately he begins to be confronted by his sin. And it goes on in verse 15. Listen to what Saul says. They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest have been devoted to destruction. Okay, who, who chose to spare them? They did. 
The people did. You're beginning to see blame shifting enter the equation. And then he says, the reason that they spared them was because our intent is to sacrifice them to the Lord. Okay, just a question. Did he come up with that on the spur of the moment? Is he that quick? Like, we didn't hear that at the beginning of the story when they said that they spared him. There was no mention of sacrifice there. But now that he's confronted for his sin, all of a sudden it's like, well, the only reason we didn't do everything that God asked us to do is because we saved the best so that we could sacrifice it to the Lord. In essence, I'm not going to do what God tells me to do. And rather than do that, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to listen to praise songs in my car on the way back and forth to work. I'm going to be in a small group. I'm going to do acts of sacrifice rather than what God's called me to do. Look at verse 16. Here's the fourth point. An unintended consequence of disobedience is it exposes our sin. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. That's pretty clear, right? Like enough of the nonsense. Quit blaming others. Quit telling us that you did this so that you could sacrifice to the Lord. Stop, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. This is the critical moment of the text. This is the moment where it is crucial what Saul does next. Is he going to listen to the rebuke of the Lord, or is he going to continue in his path of disobedience? Now, it's easy to pick on Saul in this moment, right? But this is true of all of us. There comes a moment where we are confronted with our sin. Somebody has the courage to push the relational chips to the middle of the table and challenge us and say, hey, listen, I think you're making some choices that are sinful. I think you're leaving some good undone. I think you're headed down a path where you're making bad choices. And in that moment, we've got to decide if we're going to be defensive, and you're going to see Saul do that, or are we going to listen to the person and turn from our sin? So Saul hears from Samuel, stop. Saul responds to Samuel, end of verse 16, speak. And Samuel said, though you were little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Now, I find that phrase early or interesting because it's like, why are you little in your own eyes? You would think the very opposite, that he was prideful. That's why he disobeyed the Lord. But the reality is, Saul's kind of an interesting character. Though he had this whole Bradley Cooper thing going, he was very insecure. 1 Samuel 10, we read that when he was to be anointed for king, he was a no-show at the ceremony, and they had to go find him, and he was hiding in the luggage. He felt very insecure in being propped up as king. And now as king, he's not following the commands of the Lord because he's listening to the voices of the people. And Samuel comes to him and says, don't you remember who you are? It was the Lord who appointed you as king. And very often when we choose to disobey, what's lost in that moment is who we are, our identity. And we are sons and daughters. We are adopted children of the creator God who has set his love on us. And in the moment where we're choosing disobedience, it's like God is calling down to us and saying, why are you forgetting who you are? Like in that moment, we become convinced that God is not for us. He is against us. He is not a giver. He is a taker. And we forget our identity. Samuel goes right there. He goes, don't you remember who the Lord said that you were? It's interesting, verse 18. 
And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Listen to how Saul responds. Here's the fifth thing. It causes self-deception. An unintended consequence of disobedience is it causes self-deception. Verse 20, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Most interesting phrase in that whole thing. Saul is stubborn. He is justifying his sin. He is blame shifting. He is in denial and self-deception. But the most important thing in those verses is the last three words. He refers to God as the Lord your God, Samuel. There is a distancing of Saul from God. It's not my God, it's your God. And see, that's what sin always does. We can go all the way back to the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they immediately do? They hid themselves. There is a distancing and an unintended consequence of our disobedience as we become self-deceived. And without even knowing it, he's taken a step away from God. It says in verse 22, and Samuel said, this is the most important verse in the whole text. I have absolutely no need to explain it to you. It is clear. It says, and Samuel said, as the Lord has greater delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, in essence, listen. To obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than of the fat of calves. That is easily explained. It is easily understood. It is difficult to follow. And I would challenge you as you listen to this message, please don't hear about Saul's failings. Put yourself into the story. Is there something in your life? Is there something in my life that is an area that we have said, I will not surrender that thing to the Lord. And, and I'll go to church and I'll go through the motions and I'll do most, but I won't do all. And if you can put your finger on that thing that you won't surrender to the Lord, listen, warning, there's unintended consequences when we choose disobedience. Verse 23, for rebellion is, has the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. In essence, what he's saying, our lack of being obedient in all things to the command of the Lord is our idolatry. And he goes on and says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. There it is, the sixth thing that happens when we disobey, it creates consequences. Saul in verse 24 says to Samuel, I have sinned and I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and of your words because I feared the people and obeyed the voice. That is kind of repentance, but not really. That's an apology. He just said, I sinned because of the people. He's giving a defense for his actions. It's a start, not all the way. But we know we still got problems because of verse 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Okay, he finishes his repentance moment here by asking Samuel 
to pardon his sin. Samuel cannot pardon his sin. Only the Lord can do that. And note, there is no commitment to go back and do the right that they didn't do. There's no saying, we're going to make this right. There's no saying, let's get rid of the animals. Let's do what God commanded us to do. Listen, repentance doesn't mean that we're free from all consequences. It says in verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Samuel is going to explain this to Saul three times. And though Samuel moves towards repentance, the consequences of his sin are not removed. He will lose his throne. His kids will not move to become future kings. His kingdom will be forfeited. It says in verse 27, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now, now that's interesting to me because David is referred to as better than Saul. Well, he's not bigger. He's not stronger. He's not less sinful, if you know the story of David. He's no Bradley Cooper, okay? What makes David better than Saul? The only thing I can point to in Scripture is when David is confronted with his sin, he knows how to get low. He knows how to deal with his sin. It says in verse 30, Saul said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord again, your God. Now, again, problems here. I have sinned, yet honor me now. Is that what repentance is? No, repentance is getting low. This isn't about our being honored. It's about getting low. Verse 32, and here's the seventh point. Unintended consequences of sin. God will use somebody else. It says in verse 32, Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agog, the king of the Amalekites. And Agog came to him cheerfully. Agog said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agog to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. That came on us pretty quick, right? I probably should have warned you that there wasn't a, and then they all lived happily ever after ending to this story. But in essence, what's happening here is Samuel has to complete what Saul was asked to do. In his repentance, Saul did not make a commitment to obedience. And Samuel, the prophet, has to step up and complete the command of the Lord. Verse 35, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So when we choose disobedience, we forfeit the blessing of being used by God. God's going to accomplish his purposes. That's not going to stop. But other people will share in the blessing of being used by God in accomplishing his purposes. That blessing does not go to us. Now, 
Uh, this thing feels pretty weighty right now. I understand that because I've been going over the consequences of disobedience, but please hear me. The heart of the Lord is not as a taskmaster standing over you and saying, if you choose wrong, I can't wait to punish you. The very opposite is true. It is the story of the gospel that in spite of our sin, God loved us unconditionally with pursuing, initiating love to the point where he would send his son while we were still sinners. And we are saved by grace. Obedience is never something that we do to earn God's favor. Obedience is something that we do out of gratitude for what Jesus did in our place to merit God's favor. But obedience is something that we are called to after we are saved out of gratitude. And God is talking to his people and saying, a choice is before you. You can choose to disobey and you're going to suffer the consequences. But what I'm calling you to do is obey and experience the blessing. Back in Deuteronomy, has the nation of Israel, God's people, leave Egypt. They get to the edge of the promised land. Uh, Moses, their leader, stands before them and gives them what they call the blessings and the curses. Here's what's going to happen when you get in the land if you disobey. Here's what's going to happen if you obey. Hear God's heart for his people as he talks about the blessings that he wants for them in chapter 28. He says in verse 2, And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. God is waiting to overtake us with blessing. He wants to come on us like a winter wind advisory. He wants to blow his blessing in a way that it is unmistakably from the Lord. He says in verse 6, blessed you shall be when you come in, blessed you shall be when you go out. I think that's everywhere. In everything you do, God wants to bless you. He says in verse 11, and the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. Psalm 1, David will write, Blessed is the man who doesn't follow after the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and whatever that man does, he's going to prosper. That's God's heart for us. He says in verse 13, And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds good. Okay? God is for us. And when we choose to be obedient, he responds with a blessing just work your way up the right hand of the column here, how he responds with obedience. There's seven points in 70 seconds. You ready? Starting from the bottom. Our story becomes God's story. Rather than missing the blessing of God, we see the blessing of God on our lives. And we see, we heard last night, testimony in the baptismal tank of people saying, this person was used by me as an instrument to draw me to the Lord. They were a blessing. Here's number six. It creates consequences as well. Not only does sin create consequences, but obedience does as well. Galatians 6 says, whatever you sow, whatever you plant, you will also harvest. God is not mocked. And we do not have the ability to go back and change the poor things we've planted and the regrets that we have in our past. But God promises that today we are confronted with a choice. And if we choose to begin to plant obedient things, see if he won't respond with blessing. Number five, it causes integrity rather than self-deception. How wonderful would it be to live in public the exact same way that we are in private? Here's four, it gives testimony to grace 
Rather than exposing our sin, we can constantly see God's grace in our lives. Listen, as followers of Jesus Christ and making the choice to be obedient, we're not going to be perfect on that. Can we just admit that? And we're going to take a couple steps forward and then we're going to stumble back and we're going to get up and we're going to walk and we're going to fall again. But when we repent of our sin, he forgives us our sin. And and, and by the way, we become a testimony not to our sinfulness, but the incredible grace of God who keeps forgiving us in spite of our sinfulness. Here's three. It leads to transparency. Man, when, when, when our words match our actions, Life becomes less complicated, less stressful. When we're not trying to deceive others or ourselves, man, that's just a, a great place to be. Here's number two. It blesses God's people. Obedience is not the easy choice. Nobody wants to go to Ted's and order a salad. It's never the exciting choice. But, but the reality is that's easier when the person sitting across from you is ordering the salad as well. And there's other people making difficult choices and choosing to follow God and going against the stream of our culture. Man, that is an encouragement to the people of God. And here's the final thing. And this is the most important thing. When we choose to be disobedient, the most important thing we lose is we forfeit God's favor. And when we choose to be obedient, God is for us. God is with us. That is what we desire more than anything else. And God has promised to those who choose to be obedient that he won't remove himself, that he'll hear our prayers, that he will respond to our obedience. Not with material blessings necessarily, not with relational um, peace necessarily. He responds with himself. You don't have to refer to him as that guy's God. He's our God because he's with us. And that's what we want. Now, I'm going to transition this and make this really practical for some of you. As we talk about obedience and the importance of obedience and the consequences of disobedience and the blessing of obedience, for some of you, the on-ramp of obedience is baptism. It's baptism. And by the way, whether or not to be baptized is not some, I wonder if God wants me to be baptized or I wonder what God's will is. It's crystal clear. 27 times in the New Testament, after someone is saved, they are baptized. Salvation and baptism go together like peanut butter and jelly without the burger. Okay, they're that close. Some have confused baptism with salvation. That's not the case. Baptism doesn't save you. Saved people get baptized. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward confession that you've made. But please hear me. The Bible is clear. We are never asked to walk an aisle. We are never asked to pray a prayer. The evidence of your salvation, the confession of your salvation is baptism. The New Testament knows nothing of a follower of Jesus Christ who refuses to be baptized. Am I being strong enough? Let me push just one more step, if I could. Make your strong argument that you are being obedient to what God calls you to do while you refuse to be baptized. Make that strong argument because it doesn't make any sense. Now, when God gives a clear command, there are many reasons or obstacles that we can 
put there to say why me maybe shouldn't. Like Paul, when God said, or when Saul said, kill them all, it's like, well, maybe that's too harsh, or, you know, maybe that's not what he really meant, or maybe that's not what the people, and we can come up with a lot of excuses, right? Like we could say, well, I really don't understand what baptism is all about. It's not that complicated. I just explained the whole thing. That's not the excuse. And if you have more questions, we have elders and their wives and pastors waiting downstairs to answer any question that you might have so that you clearly understand what God is commanding and asking you to do today. We can handle that one. Well, I I didn't come prepared this morning. Listen, last night, we had a visitor from this church get baptized. There, There is nothing that you have to do to become prepared. We've got everything thought out. Promise you. We can handle it. The question isn't, are you prepared? It's whether you're prepared to do what God's asked you to do. Some of you are like, well, I need to pray about this. False. Okay? If if I have a kid and I say, take out the garbage, and they say, well, let me pray about that first. (laughs) Like, like, seriously, I'll give that kid something to pray about, right? (laughs) And, 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 And... You don't have to pray about whether you should respond to something that God is clearly asking you to do. And there are others here that say, well, I've already been baptized. I was baptized as an infant. And listen, that's great. That means that you grew up in a family that was serious about God and they wanted to see you come to a saving knowledge of God someday. That was a choice that they made on what they hoped would happen for you. This isn't that. This is you responding, not in hope of what might happen. This is you, not your parents, making the choice to respond to what did happen. And salvation follows. I mean, salvation is before baptism. Baptism follows salvation. That's the order that is commanded in the book of Acts. Now listen, in the New Testament says this in Acts 22, 16. Now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Why would we wait and forfeit the blessings of God by not doing what he has so clearly called us to do? We got this weird thing because we have three services. There's a rollover effect. Saturday night people come and they feel compelled to be baptized, but they don't do it. And then they go home and they can't sleep that long. And then they come back at the 9 and they're baptized this morning. And people came to the 9 and they stayed to the 11 and now they're going to be baptized. Y'all are at the 11. Okay? The time to make the decision is now. And for some of you, the idea of coming up front is terrorizing to you. You don't want to stand in front of people. And listen, I get that. The water's warm. The room that you wait in is freezing cold. We get you shaking before you ever get out there. But why would we let our momentary fears cause us to be the thing that forfeits doing what God called us to do? All of this is in response to a grace that has been poured out on us where God Almighty took on flesh and came and demonstrated his love for us. Why would we not respond by demonstrating our love to him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this moment. And um, 
I would pray that you would give some the courage to um, respond. Father, we thank you that you are a God who sees, that you are a God who cares, that you are a God who knows, that you are a God who loves. And Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for uh, the cross. We thank you for grace. Father, we give you all the glory. It's in the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen. As Chris leads the worship, it's pretty straightforward. I'm going to go back and get ready. My wife, Kristen, is there. Just come up and see Kristen. She'll get you to people who can make sure that if any you have any questions, that they are answered and uh, get you ready. The only question remaining is, will you come?